Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I am your host, Karen Curtis, and I have in the past brought you stories about Florida inmates convicted of murder who are sometimes on death row, sometimes serving life in prison, who I thought perhaps may have gotten a bum rap and were not guilty. Well, I have another case, and this time there are a lot of high-powered people that believe that Leo Schofield was wrongly convicted of murdering his 18-year-old wife, Michelle Schofield, in 1987. She was found dead in a phosphate pit in Lakeland, Florida. She had been stabbed to death 26 times. Now, two years later, her husband, Leo, without any kind of real physical evidence, is all circumstantial, was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Fifteen years later, some previously unidentified fingerprints matched another guy a murderer, Jeremy Scott, also known as Bam Bam on the street. He was a teenager who lived nearby, and he was convicted of a murder right after Schofield was convicted. Now, there are several other unsolved cases of women who were stabbed to death in the area around that time that Michelle was stabbed to death. And Jeremy Scott initially said that he stole the stereo out of Michelle's abandoned car, and that's how his fingerprints got there because her car was found and her body three days later and it had been broken into. And that was one of his MOs, was he would break into cars. But Bam Bam's mom said that she didn't think that her son killed Michelle. But since then, Jeremy Scott, or Bam Bam, has confessed to Michelle's murder, which he said he would do if he got paid. Yet Leo Schofield remains behind bars. He's about to be released, though, I will tell you that. His attorney turned down a plea deal and didn't tell him about it for second-degree murder. And he would have been out in only a few years. His lawyer didn't consult him on the offer because he said he would not have pled guilty. No physical evidence, no witnesses. It was a circumstantial case. So he had a plea deal on the table, and he didn't know about it. That bothers me. So I find reasonable doubt on this podcast, and... The fact that Leo had an alibi depended on his parents who were with him the night that Michelle disappeared. But his father apparently told some really stupid lies, some whoppers, and lost all credibility. So Leo Sr. knew exactly where to look for her body because he helped Leo dispose of the body is what prosecutors believe. And the biggest reasonable doubt red flag, of course, is in 2004 when the Florida Department of Law Enforcement revealed that fingerprints found in Michelle's red Mazda, which were not identified at the time of Leo's trial, actually belonged to Jeremy Scott, better known as Bam Bam. So he's currently serving life for robbing and strangling Donald Moorhead, who was 37, with a phone cord in a Lakeland trailer in 1988. So despite unwavering denials and no physical evidence linking him to the case, Leo Schofield, who was 21 at the time, was arrested and convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison in 1989. Prosecutors relied on witnesses who portrayed him. He was a young guitarist with the band Rhino, R-Y-N-O, which stands for Rock Your Nuts Off. 
As an abusive spouse who regularly argued with his wife, he maintained his innocence while his attorneys pointed to unidentified fingerprints in the car, which ended up turning out to belong to Bam Bam. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. So, Leo has maintained his innocence up until today. He's become a paralegal behind bars and a welder. He has married a woman and they've adopted a baby. So his life has gone on even though it's been at the Hardy Correctional Facility. All the while, appellate courts denied him a new trial year after year. And joining me now is the host of Bone Valley, where the murder went down. He is Pulitzer Prize winning author Gilbert King. So, Gilbert, thank you for joining me. Can I call you Gilbert? Of course. Thanks for having me, Karen. Oh, my gosh. So, first of all, you won a Pulitzer Prize for your book, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. It was in 2012. Your research for that book got those Groveland Boys exonerated. So, it's an honor to speak with you. And you've decided to take up this case, which is really interesting, You know, I do believe that there is reasonable doubt in this case, obviously, uh, a tragic case of an 18-year-old, Michelle Schofield, that, you know, the jury found her husband, who was 21 at the time, guilty of killing her, stabbing her 26 times. And apparently, you know, the coroner said that she lost five pints of blood, and prosecutor said she was killed in their trailer. There's no blood in the trailer. There's no blood in the car that was found that was broken into. I know it's 1987, and they didn't have DNA and all that good stuff, but forensically, this thing screams of problems. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the part of the problem is, they had a witness who said she observed Leo carrying something heavy out that night. So that, that kind of boxed them in. That statement boxed them uh, in. So the trailer had to be the crime scene. Gotcha. But, you know, like all those detectives and all those crime scenes technicians went there, they found nothing, like not even a drop of blood. Um, the, the trailer was not the crime scene. And that was really sort of what we sort of figured out as we went through the podcast. Did they have uh, luminol back then? Yeah, they did. Okay. They had a bunch of stains that they said possibly could have been blood, but when they tested the stains, uh, none of it really came oh, back God's to sake. any human blood. So, yeah, yeah. You're, t- you're talking about Alice Scott, who was delusional. She had you know, been in a mental hospital. Her husband was like, don't believe a word she says. She said she saw something out the bathroom window, which was impossible. Then she changed her story and said she moved to the screen porch and saw Leo carrying something heavy out of the house and that they were having a fight. And heavy object wrapped in cloth in the driveway so apparently she's been discredited so they could actually move the crime i mean this whole thing is just racked with problems yeah i think there'd be a big problem if they tried to go back for a retrial and she took the stand again um you know it was pretty obvious when you read the transcript she basically says i saw leo carrying something out that night but i'm not good with dates and her (laughs) sister-in-law was right next door and they remember seeing that happen and she said, I was there. I was, we were right in the driveway talking about it. But it was a week or two before Michelle disappeared. So one of those one of those witnesses, they're both state witnesses. One of them has a pure clarity about what she saw. And the other one has changed the story a bunch. And she's the one that convicted Leo, basically. Right. Because there's 
it's just circumstantial. And so yeah. this is an eyewitness 50 yards away in her, her trailer, but she's unreliable with a capital U, and they really have nothing else. And then the prosecutor, or excuse me, the defense attorney tells the jury at the time, and was 89, there's fingerprints in her car that haven't been identified. And then what, in 2004, right. they come back to? Yes, and they come back to a man named Jeremy Scott, who lived about a mile away from where Michelle's body was found. And he had, we had been known to frequent that. We talked to his, you know, girlfriend who said, you know, he, she, he used to take her back there, the same exact spot where Michelle's body was found. So, I mean, everything, if they would have found those prints and identified them back in 1987, this case would have went totally away from Leo and right towards Jeremy Scott. This is a convicted murderer who's saying this. Yeah. Um, there is a couple things about Jeremy Scott, though, that trouble me. By the way, I have told our audience that you have a podcast called Bone Valley. That's where the murder occurred. And you really delve into this. You have interviews with everybody. If they want to go and hear all the interviews, you interviewed Schofield. You interviewed, you interviewed Jeremy Scott, right? Right. Very last episode, we finally get to Jeremy Scott. And then he admits to murdering Michelle, that he sleeps with dead bodies. He says he rolls over and sees dead bodies. He's what? He's got like four bodies attached to him, four murders. Yeah, he's confessed to four murders, three of them he's forensically linked to. Um, It's pretty clear that when we talked to him, he was emotionally disturbed by his past. And, you know, he would get so emotional and he was admitting to everything. Um, there's no way that he's lying about this. This is a very, this is a person who told these stories. He was dealing with memory. He's very specific about what happened that night and where he was. And, you know, I think it's clear to anybody who listens to that, that this is not a man who's trying to get over on us. He's actually coming clean and, and expressing remorse. He remembered about the Marlboro cigarettes that wasn't in evidence or that wasn't made public about the cigarette package near the body. And yeah, then he stole I mean, $10 me, that, that was, and that's what she made in tips. Yeah. I mean, he was he was pointing to some very specific things. You know, some of it you could never prove, you know, things that they said between each other. But, you know, I talked to some of I talked to Leo and I talked to some of Michelle's friends. And I said, you know, does that sound like something Michelle would do, something she would say? Everybody said yes. Okay. I mean, I felt like we were describing her. And he said that he gave her a ride. It was raining. And the other weird thing is they knew each other, according to waitresses. Jeremy knew Michelle. They ran in the same circles. Is that true? Yeah, they definitely they definitely ran in the same circles. And, and, and what Jeremy said, which was, I thought, really interesting, and we did some background on this, and they definitely had some common friends. Um, Jeremy said, I didn't remember. She said she remembered me from a party or something. Okay. And to me, that was like also very telling because... You know, Jeremy was just reacting to what she said. He didn't recognize her, but she said she recognized him. That really makes it clear why she why she might give him a ride and he might get in the car with her. Right. Well, apparently they showed him the crime scene photos and he said, I didn't do that. Did he think yeah. it, sh- it shocked him? Yeah, I mean, you could tell when they when they showed him those crime scene pictures, you know, he was emotionally upset because that was some, he was looking at somebody he killed. And I think the way he described it, he said, I didn't do that. And I think what he was really talking about was the wound after she'd been submerged in water for three days and then it was freshly cleaned. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite look like a knife stab anymore, to, to be you know honest. Sure. And I think he was saying, I didn't do that. Because later on, he said, I didn't think my knife would do that much damage. I think he just didn't know that, you know, what the wound would look like three days later. 
But he did tell his mom initially when they identified his fingerprints that, yeah, he did steal the woofers and the tweeters out of her car, her stereo equipment, uh, which is what his M.O. was, but that he didn't kill her. He So he's, yeah. he's waffled so much. Can we believe him? I think you can because, I mean, personally, like, I, I've listened to so many tapes of him when he's trying to lie. And, you know, when the investigators come and he lies, he's just so obvious. He's not a master criminal. So they, they, the investigators show up and say, did you just take a call with Leo's lawyers confessing to this and sending out a letter? And he's like, no, I didn't do that. Uh, well, they have the letter. You know what I mean? Like, he, yeah. he's pretty obvious when he's lying. But when he's telling the truth, you can see his emotional attachment to the story that he's telling. I, I personally believe that he was telling the truth in our interview with him. Well, and speaking of lying, it is on record, and I know it's not admissible in court, that Leo didn't, he failed the polygraph when they asked him if he stabbed his wife. So I want to add, they were church going, and their church actually paid for their wedding and uh, got them a freshly painted efficiency. And they had a really kind of a nice life. I know they were both high school dropouts and he was in this band and she was a waitress, but they said she didn't work in the afternoon, but that's what happened that day. I'm, I'm confused about all of that. Yeah, she got, she got off work um, on, the, on, the, on the night she disappeared. She got off work at, at about 8, 10 p.m. She went home, she did some laundry, and then at 9.45, she drove back to the gas station because they didn't have a phone in their trailer. And she called Leo at 9.45, where, he, where Leo was practicing with his band and waiting for her, and said, I'll be right over, which should have taken her like 15 minutes, and, and she just never showed up. So, um, and, and frankly, Jeremy's story about stumbling into her in a gas station while she was on the phone makes total sense. I see. Yeah. What about the lie detector test that he allegedly failed, Leo? You know, I, I don't put any emphasis on those lie detector tests. Those are interrogation tools. Um, you know, we don't know how the lie detector administrator thought he failed. He just said, you know, I think you failed. I think you killed your wife. And that's usually like an interrogation technique. And it, there's, those are not admissible in court. So I put no emphasis on those things. They really only measure anxiety, not lies. Okay. And then he maintained his innocence. His attorneys... Um, they turned down, or one attorney turned down a plea deal that would have had him out in a couple of years, and he didn't know about it. Would he have taken that plea deal? I know that he's due to be let out of prison, but he won't admit to it or apologize. So is that true that he... Yeah, he, he did. I think the, the prosecutor recognized that he didn't have a very strong case against Leo. And so at the last minute, he offered Leo second-degree murder charge, which um, back in 1989, um, you know, with, with credit for time served... Um, Leo probably would have only spent a couple years in prison. He probably would have been out in the 90s. Um, but, you know, his lawyer didn't tell him about that until after he turned it down. Uh, but Leo has made it clear he would never plead guilty to anything that involved him saying he did something he didn't do. Hmm. Well, a jury of his peers convicted him. I know they didn't have all of the evidence. You know, at that time, there were three unsolved murders or, yeah, three women like Michelle, all died of multiple stab wounds to the upper body. And they had their rings on and they were missing like 5 to $20. She was missing 10. None sexually assaulted, just like her. So maybe there's somebody else other than Jeremy Scott and Leo Schofield. Well, I mean, you could say that, but Jeremy Scott has confessed to these and he's forensically tied to them. So I could, we couldn't find any evidence that linked any other person, any, any other forensic evidence listing anybody. Um, there's nothing connecting Leo to even the car anymore. 
Um, so it, to me, it's like it's Jeremy Scott or nobody. I mean, I don't know how, how else to look at it. I think that there's so much evidence that points to Jeremy. Um, you know, if it was reversed, think of it this way. If he was just some prisoner, you know, in prison, he said, oh, by the way, I killed a girl back in Polk County in 1987. The first thing the prosecutor would say, yeah, well, that's great. Anybody can say that. Are you forensically tied to the crime scene? And he is. So to me, it's like it's a, a no-brainer. He's he's the actual murderer. How could they go to trial with these unknown fingerprints in her Mazda and convict this <laughs> Leo Schofield with circumstantial evidence and this neighbor who was delusional and her testimony? I don't. It's it's beyond no. me. And how can you rely on that jury decision? I really think you can. I mean, sometimes you get a, you know public defenders and people say, oh, they're not prepared, they're overworked, they're, they're not the people to defend you. Yeah, it's In this not case, an Leo had a, a Yeah, Leo had a private attorney. Uh, he got, had somebody who was very expensive and well-known, but he absolutely did no pretrial investigations. He didn't do any research. He just kind of winged it. And um, that's what cost him. He was up against a very aggressive and competent prosecutor, and he just got outplayed at every single hand. So, well, there you go. He had ineffective counsel. There's all kinds of arguments for this thing to be overturned and he should get a new trial, but they keep denying it. Multiple judges giving multiple denials for a new trial, even though you've got someone with their fingerprints in the car who's obviously a confessed murderer for at least four times, and they still don't give him a new trial? Yeah, I... I don't really understand it. I think this case needs to get out of Polk County, frankly. But, you know, the thing about the confessions and, and all of this evidence, I mean, Jeremy Scott has just not been investigated. It's, it's because Leo and Jeremy both had the same prosecutor. So, of <sighs> course, this prosecutor is interested in protecting his conviction of oh. Leo Scopium. So he's the one that shuts down the investigation into Jeremy Scott. I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's an interesting little tidbit right there. What about Leo's dad, though? Um, he has told some big whoppers, and he yeah. knew where the body was. Did he help Leo dispose of the body, like the prosecutor says? No, I think what happened was, you know, this is a three-day search. The, the, the prosecution and the media kind of make it sound like Leo's father woke up in the middle of the night with a vision from God and thinking he knows where the body is and led police there. And that gets repeated over and over by, you know, appellate court judges as if it's fact. The truth is, he was, they, he found Michelle's body three days after, uh, she was missing. Uh, it was a three day search. It was methodical. They worked back from where they found the car. They all split up. He was just the one that found it. And this premonition that he claimed to have had, he never mentioned that until after he found the body. Oh. So that, that's one of those things. It's like, I heard somebody on Twitter say Leo is convicted because there's um, uh, he had a father who said, God, help me find his car keys. You know, like it, it was one of those things. Like he said it in the aftermath uh, of this. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's any evidence of anything. So is Leo due for parole in the near future? Yes. He's you know, he's had he had a parole hearing back in 2020. Um, he, he did not make that parole hearing. Part of the problem is the state attorney, the retired state attorney shows up. And just argues to the parole commission that uh, Leo has never said he's sorry for killing his wife. He's never shown any remorse. He should not be released. Oh. And even though he's completely eligible and a perfect candidate for parole, he served his minimum 10 years ago. No disciplinary infractions. He's a leader in the prison. They just keep turning him down because he hasn't apologized for something he says he never did. Well, he may have turned down the plea deal for second-degree murder. We don't know because his attorney didn't tell him about it. That's another reason to give him a new trial. 
my gosh, it's just yeah. glaring. I mean, there's definitely enough evidence. <laughs> it's shocking. But I find it interesting that, you know, his alibi depended on his parents who were with him the night that Michelle disappeared. And again, they're a young couple. They were just married. They went to church. And he was painted by prosecutors as being like a wife beater and that he pulled her hair. And none of this stuff was verifiable. Well, you know, it's interesting, like, because Leo admitted to, you know, he was, he, Leo was very honest to me. Everything he told me checked out. When I went out and checked everything he said, I never found anything that he was misleading me. He even told the court that he'd slapped Michelle twice, and yet there were no witnesses to that. He volunteered that. Uh-huh. I think he's very, like, transparent about his, you know, failures as a husband uh, back when he was, you know, 20, 21 years old. But they used that a lot. They used a lot of character witnesses and just sort of, the state opened their case with all this character evidence that I think, you know, by the time they got to the real evidence, everybody hated him already. And it was pretty much a no brainer. Oh, well, he has really turned his life around while behind bars. He's married. He's a paralegal. He's a welder. Uh, you know, he's I think he also counsels people in in prison. He's done a lot to turn his life around from being in a band. But you know, does he want to wait to be exonerated even if he's let out or they won't let him out until he apologizes? Um, I mean, hopefully that that won't happen again. I think, you know, he's got another parole hearing coming up this spring. Um, You know, it's it's kind of his hope that um, the prosecution is not going to fight this, given that there's so much information out there now. And his whole narrative has sort of been redefined by our investigation. So I think he's hoping that when if he comes up for parole this time, there won't be any more of that. Look, he's never said he's sorry uh, kind of thing from the former state attorney. So I think he's hopeful that, that he might, this might be different, but you know, it's the state of Florida. You never know. My gosh. I mean, they would put to death people with room temperature IQs in the state if they could. It's yeah. amazing. And the innocence project is also helping you out. I know when you first heard this story, you delved into it and, talk to everybody and you know obviously you're a Pulitzer Prize winning author we're speaking with Gilbert King and you really believe that he's telling you the truth yeah you know I've been through this before like when I when I wrote Devil in the Grove I spent like five years on that book and I just got access to so many files that no one had ever seen before and it was just very clear once I laid it all out that these guys were wrongly accused And, and fortunately Enough people read the book that felt that they wanted to correct this injustice, and, and the Governor DeSantis pardoned them in 2019, and they were just exonerated, fully exonerated last year. Wow. Um, and so that's the kind of detail and investigation that I put in. I'm absolutely convinced Leo Schofield is innocent, 100% innocent, and that Jeremy Scott is Michelle's killer. Wow. Yeah, that is heavy duty. Obviously, you add a lot of weight <laughs> to the reasoning behind all of this, especially since you've talked to everybody. So... Uh, Leo is due to this spring go before the parole board. So do you hope that he can be exonerated once he is let out? I mean, you still want to fight this even after he's let out, correct? I mean, I, I think that's his intention. I think the first thing he wants to do is, is get out of prison. Um, that, that's his biggest priority. Um, it, would be, uh, it would be great if he was exonerated, and that's the reason he got out, but it's probably not likely. Um, so it, it may be that he gets paroled first, but I don't think he's ever going to fight to you know, stop fighting to clear his name. Right. Is there anything else that you wanted to point out about all the flaws that were in the case in 1989 that would have gotten him a new trial or have we covered everything? 
I mean, we covered pretty much everything. There's always one thing that really stuck out at me, which um, Leo didn't have a phone in his trailer. And so he told, you know, the prosecutor and the police that at 2 a.m., he drove over to his parents' house to, you know, look for Michelle, see if she showed up there. Um, and he had to make phone calls from his parents' trailer. And at one point, he made a call at 2 a.m. to Michelle's grandmother. And that call was documented. The detectives went over there and, and confirmed that he did, in, in fact, call at 2 a.m. Well, that's exactly the time that um, Alice Scott claims she sees Michelle in the trailer with Leo. So she, he could not have been in two places at once. <sighs> Leo's lawyer never saw that report, never saw the 2 a.m. phone call, and never raised it at trial. And, of course, the prosecution isn't going to bring that up because that hurts their case. And so... That prosecutor just let it fly, and Leo's lawyer just totally dropped the ball. That, to me, was one of the most important facts that was not um, delivered at trial. Were his attorneys aware of the phone call? No, he never looked at the records. And, you know, he later on fell on his sword and said, I did not provide effective counsel for Leo. But um, the the judges disagreed. His defense was fine. Really? Wow. I mean, Polk County, you made a reference that they maybe need to move it out of there. I mean, I love Grady Judd, the the sheriff there. He's my favorite sheriff in Florida. (laughs) But yeah, he's he's hilarious. We interviewed him, too. Yeah, he's hilarious. But you're saying that even though multiple judges and are you saying appellate courts as well are denying this outside of Polk County? Yeah, the the appellate courts are, are denying it. But, you know, I mean, most of the people in that in that circuit are, you know, from Polk County, have, have links to Polk County. Um, I just think it needs to get out of there and have somebody with fresh eyes look at that case. I, I think if somebody like a Conviction Integrity Review Unit, anyone in Florida, I think if they looked at our evidence and our reports and our investigation, that they would come to the exact same conclusion that we did, that Jeremy Scott is Michelle's killer, not Leo. Yeah, well... I hope you keep me up to date on this and let me know when the parole, a parole hearing comes up, if he gets out and then B, if he's exonerated, because, you know, what a travesty. How long has he been in prison for this? Uh, 35 years now. 35 years. And he could have just had a few years if he had taken a plea deal. That's what's so shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, he, he, there's things he could have done along the way that would have, you know, helped him get out, but he's just, he's very adamant. He said I can't plead guilty to a parking ticket that I didn't, you know, violate. So he's very adamant and very transparent about his intentions. And he, he just, he's not going to admit to killing Michelle to get out of prison. He said, it's easier for me to do time than to live with a lie like that. Wow. I mean, that lends credence to the whole story anyway, right there. All right, yeah. Gilbert King, thank you so much for joining us on full, joining me on Full Rigor. And I really appreciate your time and all the work you've put into this case. And I cannot wait to see what happens in the end here. I think that you possibly might be able to win out because you have uh, facts on your side. I mean, that's the, the strongest thing we have is I think we have the truth. And yeah. uh, hopefully that will be enough. Usually the truth always comes out in the end. That's for sure. Thanks for joining me on Full Rigor. Thanks, Karen. I really appreciate it. Pleasure talking to you. Pleasure talking to you. Bye. Bye-bye. That wraps up this episode of Full Rigor. Again, if you want to check out Gilbert King's podcast, it's called Bone Valley. But basically, I covered everything in this podcast. And of course, I'll keep you up to date if anything does develop from this story. So until next time, thanks for listening.